Hey everybody, David here. I'm with Heidi. And before this week's episode, we wanted to tell you about something that Heidi is uh, is involved with. And it is the atrium program over at the Cersei Institute. Those of you who've been longtime listeners, you know about Cersei. They used to be the producers of this show. We used to work for them. And well, Heidi's still involved and she's involved with the atrium program where you can explore the foundations of classical education with a dynamic online community. It's a one-year program. It explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. And you can choose one or multiple courses if you want. And the four courses that they have coming up in this next school year are as follows. Our very own Heidi White on Shakespeare. What? Norms and Nobility with Tonya Rizal. We've got Plato's Dialogues with our old friend, uh, Dr. Matthew Bianco. And then uh, our friend Kristen Rudd is doing The Divine Comedy. So some great books because, again, that's Shakespeare, Norms and Nobility, Plato's Dialogues and the Divine Comedy. And this is all through, uh, through the Circe Institute's atrium program. These are live webinars. There's a couple times each month. There's an online forum. And yeah, Heidi, you're doing one of them. You're doing it on Shakespeare. Why do you particularly... like? What do you enjoy about doing the atrium with, oh, with your class? The atrium is so fun. I teach high schoolers uh, at a hybrid school twice a week. Uh, and I love that. That is the best. Uh, but there's something really special about dialoguing with adults um, Mm -hmm. who are, you know, a lot of them are teachers themselves or homeschooling uh, or, you know, working in schools and in education and, or just enthusiasts, like literary enthusiasts, like our listeners over here at Close Streets. And um, so to be able to talk about the great books over an extended period of time, over the course of an entire school year, uh, to delve into that together, it's just opened up a lot of rich conversations I've learned a lot from. Um, And yeah, it's just been such, such a good time. I love it. And I'd love to have some of our close readers over uh, with me at the atrium at the Cersei Institute. I just think that would be the best. Yeah. So again, uh, you can do Norms and Nobility class with Tanya Roselle. Norms and Nobility is the book by David Hicks, one of the greatest books on education ever. You can talk about Shakespeare with Heidi. You can talk about Plato with Matt Bianco. You can talk about Dante with, with Kristen Rudd. All of them are great. Yeah. Cersei provides the digital platform. You bring the desire for wisdom and virtue and together that's the community. So if you head over to CerseiInstitute.org slash atrium, you can figure out more about which course you might want to take and you can learn how to sign up and the cost and all those different details. So again, it is CerseiInstitute.org slash atrium. And uh, thanks to Cersei and to the atrium for sponsoring Close Reads this week. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Loris, a Russian novel by, well, a Russian writer, Eugene Vodoloshkin. And this is uh, our book for the next seven weeks, six, six conversations and then a Q&A. This is one of those books that people have strong feelings about. There's a lot of people who love this book and a lot of people who are like, I don't get it. And so we're going to dive into this book um, before we do that, though, we want to uh, we got to wish Galen happy birthday publicly on the on the air. Today is Thursday, July twenty eighth. That's when we're recording, and uh, Galen turned uh, twenty four today. So, for those of you who have not been listening to the podcast for the last year, I got married. My wife's name is Galen, and it's her birthday. Mm-hmm. And she's not 24 because... Wait, is that what David <laughs> just said? It's very well known that you're 50. So I just really want to put that out there that... Wait, did David just say she was 24 and I yes. missed it? I'm so sorry. Yeah, I was she like, turned 24. 24 yeah, I jumped I David's line because I'm glad that you picked up on that and we didn't just glaze over it. David. <laughs> right. She is 
and she's perfect. She looks like she's 24, but she's not. And she's perfect. And we love her. And happy birthday, Galen. You're amazing. I'll tell her you guys said so. I, Thank you. I thought it was, yeah, I thought I was making a compliment. Just kind of like one of those weird compliments that I make well, sometimes a, in a like mischievous, silly way. Yeah. I think that belongs more in mischievous than, I mean, it's a compliment. <laughs> But it's a compliment. She looks, you know, like a certain age, not she is a certain right. age. And um, am I sewing? Am I trying to sew a little bit of complication into your life? Maybe Apparently. a little bit of uh, a little bit of mystery, maybe some rumors. No, but, you know, things happen. <laughs> to um, quote Tim McIntosh, something he said recently regarding David and I. We gang up on a brother. <laughs> you do. You gang up on a brother. I was I was and, warning and our friend Sean the other day that you guys gang up on a brother. That's right. We just, and that was on an episode you haven't heard yet. It's the episode. We're just going to tell everybody. We, the four of us, three of us plus Sean Johnson, who's going to be helping us out on Close Reads in 2023, we recorded the episode where we are decided what we're going to read on the show. So we're going to be revealing the 2023 book choices here soon. But for now, we are here to talk about Loris. As I mentioned, this is a 2012 novel by Eugene Vadalashkin. Um, it won the Big Book Award and the Yasnaya. Pollyanna uh, Book Award. And then in 2015, it was translated into English by Lisa Hayden. And since then has become uh, something of a cult classic, especially among like our kind of world of readers, the one that we kind of um, hang out in. I, I don't really know how else to say that. Um, and I know this is a book that both of you uh, really, really love. And I think, Heidi, this was your choice of books for the year. So what I want to do today is we don't have as much time today as we sometimes do. So we're probably not going to be able to go the full hour. We're definitely not going to be able to go the full hour. So what I wanted to do is focus on two things. Why do you guys love this book? Like, What is it that has made this book um, something that you wanted to return to and to really dig into? What makes you excited to do that again? But then also, and then what are you excited that, that the readers are going to get to experience and get out of it? But then also, I want to talk about some tips, I guess, for how to approach this book, because it's a little confounding in some ways. I find it a little bit confounding. It's, it's an unusual book. It's full of uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and it's full of the Middle Ages and Russia and all these different perspectives that are almost all of them very unfamiliar uh, to us as modern, you know, mostly Western readers. But then also it has a kind of an unusual narrative structure and, 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 and a kind of disparate voice and all these different things that go into it. And so I would love to hear from you guys. Uh, right now I'm rambling to give you a chance to think about these two things as one does, but I'm, I would love to hear from you on each of you, maybe provide a few tips for how you think we can, we should approach this book. And then after that, we can dig into a few questions that I have about this first section. We read through page 53. So we've read, we've met Arseny, we've met Christopher. And at the end of page 53, at that point, Arseny's alone. Uh, Christopher, his parents have died. Christoph has died and he is now the healer himself. So that's where we are. If those of you who are listening and you're to an audiobook or something and you're a little unsure of where the page break is, that's about where we ended. So we've met our main character and the rest of his life kind of unspools, unspools maybe too negative of a word, but unfurls. Is that better? Unfurls from here. Uh, Tim, I want to turn to Heidi second, but Tim, I want to hear from you first. What is your relationship with this book and why do you like it so much? Yeah, I love the book. Um, and I was trying to think like what to compare it to. I, one of the reasons that I like it, I've never read a book like this. 
never read a book like this. And I bet our readers have never read a book like this. It gets compared to Umberto's Echo, Umberto Echo's Name of the Rose. For me, I don't know if that's like a great comparison. I think a better comparison is maybe Gabriel Garcia Marquez in some ways in that- Like the magical realism? Yeah, because things happen in this book that are kind of, they're closer to me to magical realism than, I don't know, like fantasy. Because it, mm-hmm. one of the things about magical realism, I should back up. In magical realism, the most well-known author who writes in that genre is Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And his characters will, they kind of inhabit a normal plane of existence like you and I do. And then a character will sprout wings and fly across a river. And there's no explanation given like, hey, a miracle is about to happen or something extraordinary is about to happen. It's done in the same sort of tone as the rest of the story is. I think that's a little bit of a better comparison for me than The Name of the Rose. Um, I really like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, so I'm giving a compliment to the book. One of the other reasons that I like the book so much is that it really feels like you're being plunged into a completely different universe. Sure, this is Russia of the 15th century, but it's so different. It's so different than the United States in 2022. And we can talk about this plenty. I trust that our author is not just weaving a fanciful imaginative story. It feels like this is like really what it was probably like because of his academic background. Mm, Yeah. Heidi, one of the things that uh, I think one of the reasons that this book is compared to Umberto Eco is because, well, one, it takes place in the Middle Ages, I guess maybe like a century apart compared to In the Name of the Rose. Or sorry, The Name of the Rose. But it's also a piece of fiction that is very philosophical in terms of its approach to medieval studies and literary theory and the Bible and biblical stories and all these different things. So I think that's probably where it's that comparison is coming from. Do you, is, is the reason you love this book because of how philosophical it is? Or is that, or is the philosophical part of it something that's kind of like uh, just, it's part of what it is, but it's not what draws you to it? Um, that's a really good question. I think that I have, I specifically, this little insight into the inner life of Heidi White, um, <laughs> I have a very hard time. Um, separating philosophy from my, this is going to sound so weird. As I say it, I realize how weird this is. Very specific to me. I love philosophical thinking because I find it very emotional, like very emotive. So I, and very existential. Like I don't go into my head when I encounter a philosophical narrative and try to get above it. I like go inside of it. Like it, like I dive into it, like like the ocean. And I find like it the very, basement that you're in right I, now. Exactly. I'm in a basement. It's my first time in a dank basement. Although my 
best friend Emily's going to feel really sad when she, she hears I called her basement dank. It's not dank. It's lovely. You've um, never been. A, she just said that this is the first time she's ever show. been in a dank. Oh, on the show. On the okay, show. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. that's like par for the course for closers. You're always in dank basements, except I'm, I'm not. Literally yeah. in the dankest you of basements are. right now. You're in yeah. a very dank basement right now yeah. at the bookstore. I'm in yeah. a lovely basement um, that belongs anyway. to my friend. <laughs> anyway, the point is that I am. Um, it is a philosophical narrative. It assumes that the life of the mind and the life of the heart are closely connected and, and that people make existential decisions when those two streams of or modes of being in the world meet together. And I am the same way. And so to me, it doesn't feel philosophical in the sense that it's like giving me all these ideas to think about. I feel like I'm Arseni inside of his head grappling with the with how ideas meet reality and what that means for him as an individual in mm -hmm. this very communally focused and Eastern spiritual world. And, and I'm like happy to be taken along for the ride. Do you guys think that this magical realism vibe that Tim is, is talking about is connected to the philosoph the philosophy? I don't, I don't feel yeah. philosoph philosophy is not the right word, but the, 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 the idea at the core of this book. I do. Go yes, ahead, yeah. yes, absolutely. I mean, he's one of the things he's playing with is how time and eternity intersect, and and so if if being eternal is outside of time, then anything could happen at any one time if we're paying attention, right? And that, to your point, David, even saying it out loud is a very mind like philosophical idea, but to me. Eugene Vodolajkin doesn't present it. It's not like reading Heidegger. Like it's, it is, it's like immersing yourself in the life of a person who's wrestling and grappling with these in a very existential way. Um, and I think that we have to just let that happen. Like part of reading this book is knowing that you're not going to get it. Like it is so foreign in time and space and translation that I, I tend to read it like poetry, like, I, like just let it wash over me. Um, so you would subscribe to my theory, what I always say, well, I borrowed this from my dad about poetry, but understanding is overrated. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think that he's playing with time and space and eternity and the stories we tell ourselves versus the world that we live in. Um, and forcing us, as Tim pointed out, kind of forcing us to recognize that we're outsiders, that we are aliens and strangers to what's going on in the book, and, mm. and that it's not the book's job to make that easy on us. It's our job to decide if we want to immerse ourselves in it or not, and if we're willing to humble ourselves to it. Um, and, and that is like so evident, even in the way that we're plunged in from the very beginning. Hmm. Tim, go ahead. Um, I think, so being plunged in from the very beginning, upon rereading this book, I kept asking myself, why do I like this book so much? Because it's, it's, it's not like it's this sort of um, page-turning, drama, a riveting tale of mystery and suspense that you can't turn away from. It's not that. And I keep, kept thinking, what's the attraction? Like, why do I keep reading it? So here's a little bit of a hot take. 
I think that the reason. Oh, a Tim hot take early oh, on. I'm coming right. I'm coming out hot. I'm going to hot <laughs> with the hot exciting. take. Hence, hence, hence the hot. Take. I think that the I think that the reason this book is so compelling is that it functions on us in the same way that a sci-fi novel does. Which a sci-fi novel, let's hmm. use Dune. Okay. Works on us. Topical. Very topical. Because it's all about world making. You you go with, is it Frank Herbert, the name of the author of Dune? Yep, you yep. just go into this alternative world where spice is this kind of commodity that everyone in the galaxy is trying to kind of corner the market in. And and there are all these, and there are worms that live in a desert and the worms in the desert are, you know, they'll kill you if you're out in the middle of the desert. And you just go into this world and you kind of imaginatively accept it. And for my money, Dune is a great sci-fi novel, but it's not like an incredible work of, of um, I don't think the characters are particularly well drawn. I don't think think that its plot is particularly riveting. The thing that it does really, really well is world creation. And it seems to me like sci-fi when done really well, it succeeds in creating a world that is so believable, believable and inhabitable that we kind of just want to kind of throw ourselves into it. The difference of course, with this book is that I think that this is a lot of like I don't mean the characters are living out real history, but I think they're living in a real historical world, which was the like late medieval Russia. Hmm. I love that. I think that what you said is exactly right about the book. And I think that's intentional on the part of Eugene Vodolashkin. I also think there's certain things that we're going to miss. Uh, we're going to miss some context to it because we are Western mm -hmm. and um, and so there's another layer of kind of an alien approaching this world um, because of that. Uh, I think even in even in Russia, from the reviews I've read, that this is this is a book that that takes some effort. Um, but we as Westerners have another layer to overcome too, really is one. We don't know the illusions. I don't know them. Like this isn't, this isn't like, oh, wow. Heidi's an expert in illusions, not right? illusions. Yeah. Starting with an A, but there's so many things I don't get either. I don't know the Russian folk tales. I don't know the, the Russian fairy tales as much as I should. Um, I'm, I'm gathering them. I bought a book and I'm reading some because I want to understand more. Um, but there's, there's a whole layer of cultural context that we're missing. The other thing, and this is really important in this book, uh, is this is a book in translation. And imagine reading Shakespeare in translation into another language. Shakespeare is universally acknowledged around the world as one of the greatest authors in world history. And yet... Everybody who reads it in another language will say, "Wow, I wish I could read this in English. I don't really get it. Like translating mm. Shakespeare into another language means you're going to miss a lot. 
And, and that's true here, uh, specifically because Yudin Vodolajkin is a philologist. He is a student of the Russian language, and he's mm-hmm. playing with the language all the way through all of his novels. Um, and so there's a lot that's in this novel that's in any of his other ones. His re- most recent novel, Brisbane, is full of that. Um, and I, there's a lot I didn't get as I was reading it because I don't know Russian. I don't know Ukrainian. And so that um, there's even the title of this book is hard in translation, as you can read in the introduction in the, in the version that we have. And I won't, I won't rehash that because it's easy to just read the introduction in the book. Um, but it's the, the question of translation becomes another layer that kind of makes us a stranger in approaching the novel. And that's one of the reasons why I say, read it like poetry. If you get to something that's like, that's clearly linguistic, um, or I didn't really understand that, or why is there a child suddenly with a wolf? You know, there's that, that's because of the Russian fairy tale thing. And, um, and so there's, there's certain things that you're just going to have to say, oh, I either have to do some research or let that go and just focus on Arseny and his life story and how it unfolds. Can I piggyback on that, Heidi? I I noticed the second time reading it, verb tenses sometimes shift from past to present. So the example that came to mind is on my page 26. Um, At the top of the page, I'm going to read just a few paragraphs. The boy was right. The boy is Arseny, our main character. The boy was right. The sheaves of sparks that flew out of the stove brought a distinct disquiet to the wolf. Only when the fire had settled into an even, complete burning did the wolf sprawl out on the floor and lay his head on his paws like a dog. For what you have tamed, you become responsible for forever, Christopher said, stroking the wolf. At times, now listen to this. At times, Arseny saw his own face when he looked inside the stove. It was framed by gray hair that was gathered on the back of his neck. His face was covered with wrinkles. Despite the dissimilarity, the boy understood that it was a reflection of himself. Only many years later, and under different circumstances, it was the reflection of someone who is now present tense. It is the reflection of someone who is sitting by a fire and sees the face of a light-haired boy and does not want the person who has entered to disturb him. The person entering the room, we're still kind of present tense, right? Shifts from foot to foot at the threshold and placing a finger to his lips, whispers to someone over his shoulder that the director of all Rus is busy now. He's observing the flame. So it's kind of a memory, but it's told as a present tense thing, and it goes on for a few paragraphs. And it's like it a is, memory that he, in the future? You don't really know because it sure seems like it's a memory in the future because it's the boy seeing his face as an old man, but it's told present tense. So when Heidi says, like he kind of messes with time, time present, time past, that to me is a really good example. And when I was reading the book again, I was like, wait a second, what? And I had to back up and try to kind of like comb out the time a little bit to make it make sense for me. I'm just mentioning that not just because it's going to be an interesting 
maneuver in the book, but it can also be a little bit frustrating as a reader because you're like, oh, wait, I was just tracking. Why am I not tracking anymore? In which case, just go back. Go back a few paragraphs and see where you got off track. And to add again to that, Tim, I love that. I'm so glad you pointed out that passage because there's also a layer of Christian spirituality to this that's really important to the novel. Um, He's one of the biggest kind of mystical experiences in, in Eastern Christian spirituality is this experience of, of what is called in the Orthodox Church, the eighth day perception of time, that God made time in sequential order the first day through the seventh day, but there is an eighth day coming. And that eighth day is the culmination of time and eternity. It's when Christ returns. Uh, and it's also uh, because it's eternal, it, there's an already not yetness to it, right? That it's something that's coming in the future, but it's also not because it's happening now because it's outside of time. And, and so where the eighth day meets our lives is when we feel as though we have experiences in which we transcend time, when we look forward or backward into time uh, because God is meeting us somewhere and making a temporal moment and transforming it into an eternal moment. And, and so that is, that's a mystical, that's the prayer, the prayer of Eastern mystics is at some time in life, allow me to experience the eighth day, allow me to experience the meeting of time and eternity. Uh, and in, and in Eastern spirituality, uh, we also believe that in the Eucharist, there's an eighth day experience of time that Christ is present in the body and the blood. And, um, and so that, that element of, of mysticism is also part, he's not necessarily making a philosophical statement that we're supposed to, to accept or reject. He's giving us a mystical experience with God that this child is not yet aware of being a moment of grace in his life, um, which goes to another way to read this book, which is the story of the life of a saint. Uh, this is a, it's, it's a hagiography, um, a humanized version of what the kinds of stories that children are told uh, within liturgical traditions of the lives of the saints, the idealized lives of the saints, the children who could walk, who could play with wolves, uh, the children who could, um, who, who would get up and receive the Eucharist on their first day of, of birth, right? Um, who would cry in church until they received the Eucharist in their mouth. Uh, stories that, that are considered by many Christians to be legends, right? But, but they are, they are the stories of the saints. And this is the life of a saint. This is a, a hagiography. And so we're going to see elements of Christian mysticism woven into the book. And that's one of them. If I can just add one thing, David, before you, yeah, yeah, yeah. before, you come, before I come back to you. Um, it's interesting that I, when my acquaintance with hagiographies is that the, the writer of the hagiography or the, like the life of the saint, Heidi used the word idealized, the saint that's being discussed. And that's exactly my acquaintance with hagiography. What's interesting about Loris is that it's a hagiography that includes all sorts of very like physical and bodily functions. <laughs> like there's tons of talk about very farting. Right. There's it's like Chaucer, Chaucer mixed with... Um, it's a very humanized yeah, hagiography. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not, 
that our main character is going to just be like walking on the clouds. But it's also, he's like, he's a medicine man. He's a doctor and he's treating, he's treating patients that suffer from gas and that, you know, they had just have like, you know, aren't supposed to be drinking. Have like, huge balls. Yeah, exactly. I was trying to not say it, but I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and say it. Because everyone's everyone's going to read it sooner or later. Yeah. So well, it's, it's important to the story. Of, it is. Yeah, it is. It's very important that bodies and souls at the most extreme way are presented as united in this life, in this pilgrimage. So we're not allowed to idealize Arseni. And we're also not allowed to see him as just a man. There ha- there's That's where we get, when I say just a man, I mean just a body, right? Yeah. We're not allowed to reduce him into simple material. And we're not allowed to idealize him into, into like better, more than life, right? Like he, he's fully a man and yet fully a saint. And that is the, what we're given in this book. And I love that. One of the things that you'll encounter sometimes in uh, Eastern Orthodox internet uh, chat, chat room, say Eastern Orthodox internet world is um, kind of the continuation of a controversy or, or not a, a, a controversial topic where to what extent should we accept that the saints were sinners? Like they would, they would accept as the wrong word, but um, some people will be like, well, even, you know, even so-and-so, if you look at his life made all these mistakes, right. And yet the church still considers this person a saint. And then some people will say, no, 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 we don't talk about those mistakes or, or actually maybe they didn't make these mistakes. Those are people trying to cast aspersions on them. And so there's this wide, there's this like a lot of like kind of heated debate, especially among people who are newly Orthodox, uh, especially among younger men uh, that about like these kind of topics, they just like really get into the weeds on them. And so it's interesting here to have this book from a, what people would call a cradle Orthodox person from an Orthodox country who's, who is a literary scholar who is um, a philologist who's interested in the medieval world as well, who is, who is taking all those, bringing all these things together to try to create this cohesive vision of what it means to be a saint. So when you take like what it means to be a saint in the 21st century, like intuitively what we intuit a saint would be, would be very different from what we would, someone in 1400 would intuit a saint to be and be different than 1700. And you know, if you were a peasant, it, you probably would have intuited that a little bit differently than like if you're the czar. Because <laughs> we all kind of have our sense of like, oh, this is what a saint would be. And it's so much of it is based on your circumstances. And so he's taking all these different worldviews, not worldviews and these points of view is really what I'm trying to say. And he's offering us this, this model or this conversation about what sainthood looks like in the life of an actual human. Like this is the saint who is a human, not the saint who is like born some sort of like higher level spiritual being. Right. And, and that's where I think, I think the medievals were so in tune with the flaws of their physical nature. And so they were also then in tune with like the, those limitations and what that meant for the spiritual life because they actually cared about the spiritual life. They were consumed like religion and 
the, the structures and, and foundations of religion, the calendars even of the church were how they lived their lives. And so they were consumed with and surrounded by religion and yet were more aware of their physical limitations within those structures than we are now with modern medicine and the ability to change ourselves, right? Um, and so I think I just, it's fascinating the way he takes all these different points of view. Tim, were you going to say something there? Though? Yeah, I was going to. I was going to hearken over to the Brothers Karamazov, mm-hmm. also a Russian novel. The time of Brothers Karamazov is like two two hundred and fifty years after the time of this book, and there's this big controversy happening in the monastery that's kind of central to the story of the Brothers, Brothers Karamazov, and the big question is. When Father Zosima dies, he's the old man who everyone recognizes is going to be a saint, who is a saint. When he dies, is his body going to stink? Or is mm-hmm. his sainthood going to be kind of like proven immediately upon his death because his body does not stink? And the first time I read Brothers Karamazov, I was like, what are we talking about here? Like, wh- why is this evidence of sainthood, of course his body's going to stink. But in like the Russian mind, and I would say maybe like the Orthodox mind, this is a question. This is a question of like the proof of the man's sainthood that he is so otherworldly that his body wouldn't even smell, his decomposing body wouldn't smell in this world. And so the spoiler alert, skip forward 30 seconds if you don't want to know this about Brothers Karamazov, because it's an important, important, important point skip forward, is that his body does stink. And what that means for sainthood, for our main character, Alyosha, is of momentous import that he was both a saint and that his body stank. I made up a little rhyme accidentally. Um, So anyway, I, I think that part of the appeal of this book, especially on the second read, is that it's so immersed in kind of this very different cultural landscape that is Russia. Well, I think also when you're reading it for the first time, this has been my experience, especially uh, you get inundated by the physical aspects of it, the sinking bodies and the, 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 the well, the it. sexual <laughs> euphemisms and there's like yeah. the, um, the sicknesses and the illnesses and all that. And so you get hit on the head with that like this sort of medieval, like, it's not even like, it's the, I'm trying to think how to say it. It's the, the, I don't know if bleak is the right word, but just the lack of modern medicine and stuff like that. Just how, how um, dirty in a way and, and bare and sparks like the physical lives were of the people. So you get hit over the head with that, but you're also getting hit over the head with these mystical experiences and the spiritual questions that come out of them. And so when you're reading that, like, like that's feels like a dissonance, like you're, mm. cause you're trying to figure out how do these things work together, mm. which that's objective awful. correlative, maybe. <laughs> um, and, and so, and then you, and then you get the language aspect put into it, not just the questions of translation, but the, the nature of the way they talk to each other yeah. and like the way they talk in almost like riddles and fables. And it feels like, Especially, especially in these first 53 pages, actually, I was reminded how often it feels like no one says what 
it's actually supposed to, like no one's actually saying anything straight. Yeah. They're not it seems like, so parabolic. It doesn't seem real. Yeah. 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 Their conversation seems so parabolic. That, that actually brings me to a question. So there is a lack of naturalism <laughs> in this book, I think, other than the fact that like there's a lot of physical stuff. Heidi, do you how do you approach like that parabolic language, the 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 way that they seem to speak to each other in fables and in, in, in a way that seems un, unnatural, at least to me? To me, it feels like reading the life of a saint. Like right now I'm reading St. Porphyrius and that's how the, that, that's how the elders talked to the young monks on the holy mountain. Because as Christopher is talking to Arseni, he's already a dying man and he is, he's trying to fortify him for the ordeal that awaits him and it is coming. And he knows it um, because he has a he he has a vision across time, and that's very clear from his conversations with with Elder Nicander. And I I read this book before I was Orthodox. It's one of the reasons I am Orthodox, and I find that conversation very compelling. Um, I love it. I love it. But I'm not. I love the fact that it, the book never tries to be realism except mm. for the uh, the insistence on the physical world. And I think that's very intentional on Eugene Vodolajkin's part. He he wants us to be he wants us to know that the medievals uh, and that the church are is are not materialists. We do not believe that this is all there is. And because of that, we're not afraid of the physical world. Mm. We don't feel like we need to idealize it. We also don't feel like we need to sanitize it because it is, it's, it's dust. It's the dust that we're made of, but we're also made out of breath, right? The breath of God. And that the, the fact that we are, that our flesh is made of dust and breath is a great mystery. And the medievals never shied away from that. And, uh, and, and neither is the author of this book. And I think that part of the conversation is, is the dissonant, it, create is is intended to create that dissonance like he so, knows nobody necessarily talks like that but that's not the point the point is kind of forcing us much like they do the the, the other book that does this that i can think of i don't know if either of you read this book but the other book that does this so beautifully is Kristen lovren's daughter that just mm. from the beginning just pull immerses you in the medieval mind mm. like from the very beginning more than any book i've ever read in my life Kristen lovern's daughter is like this is what it means to have lived then hmm. the plague and the kidnapping and the exploitation and all of it and yet the mother with heavy breasts nursing her child while on a pilgrimage because her milk supply is coming in and she can't get away from that. It's so deeply female and so deeply medieval. And it does the same thing. It forces you as your, as the reader to say, I have no idea what this world is like. And yet it's fully human, just like me. Mm -hmm. And, um, but to David, David, to your point about the the way people talk that's the way people talk in the in the saints lives like between the the young monks and the elder monks but it's not it's not at all the way we talk to each other anymore there's so much wisdom in it and yet it's completely different and the it's just we it just again kind of is like not at all realism and yet it's very human and that creates this dissonance in the reader 
that is confounding. I like the word that you used, confounding. And I think it's going to be to your point that you brought up. Some people like me are going to be like, I love that. And some people are going to be like, nobody talks like that. It's weird. I don't like it. When are they going to start talking like normal people? I've I've got an example uh, from me, page 43. Christopher, Christopher is the grandfather of our main character, Arseni. Christopher hesitated as he was confessing and looked at the elder, looked at the elder in the eye. What do you want to read in my eyes? Asked the elder. You knowest that yourself, O father. I will tell you only that the reckoning does not go on for years and not even for months. Accept that information calmly without sniveling as befits a true Christian. And you're like, what? What are are they talking about? about? What are we talking about? What reckoning? <laughs> yeah, right. And, it, and you'll know by the end of uh, this first section that we read, like what it is that they're talking about. But so much conversation yeah. is just as you guys are describing. It's elliptical and it's, it's obscure. And like, wait, why does no one just like say, hand me the fork? Thanks, bro. Nobody, <laughs> no, like nobody does that. Well, but even beyond that, like what's happening here is it's, it's like in it's, um, living in questions that the novel accepts, but has never introduced before. So you're like this question of this reckoning gets brought up and, and you feel like this is a completely new question. It's getting answered before it's been asked. And so then you've got to figure out what's, what's happening. I want to, I've got two questions here. One's for Tim in just a second. One, how do you, this is for both of you, I guess the question of Chaucer got brought up or not the question, but the reference to Chaucer, the, the comparison to Chaucer. Chaucer. The question emerged. of Chaucer. Um, the, the comparison of Chaucer emerged. The thing about Chaucer is when he does all this bodily function stuff and there's a lot of sex jokes and stuff, it's like he's being funny. But and like he has seems to be having this sense of... like The medieval... Even in the medievals, they had a sense of humor about like, you know, little boys oh, and their yeah. fart jokes, right? So... Maybe they're even. Maybe it was actually like civilized to to make fart jokes. I don't know. But does this? Do you read this book as being funny, as having a sense of humor mm. in the way? Because the Chaucer comparison it, it gets cut off for me at that point. Like mm. Chaucer seems to be doing something particular with the humor in a way that Shakespeare often was doing too. That doesn't seem to be happening here, and I can't decide if that's just because this is Russian. <laughs> David, I had a very similar question. I th- Maybe I Heidi think. thinks it's hilarious, though. First, I think that the book is very funny, but I okay. think um, I think that Chaucer is kind of I'm going to say self-aware. He oh, yeah, I sure, knows, sure, yeah, right. Yeah. Like yeah. he's kind of winking at his listener or his reader. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. So I think there's there just seems to me like there's a difference with this book. In fact, what prompted this was I was reading the reviews of this book listed on the inside cover. And, you know, it has these glowing reviews by these like great literary magazines at once stylistically ornate and compulsively readable enchanting says the literary time supplement. So I'm reading through these and then I get to the Los Angeles review of books and here's the first sentence. And I wanted to, I think this is kind of like a derivative of your question, David, the LA review of books says Loris is no seamless dream of Russia's past, but here's the part, a very clever, self-aware contemporary novel that nevertheless holds the dream deep, the Russian dream deep in its heart. I read that and I was like, 
Is it really a very, it's like a, is it a self-aware novel in the same way that I'm going to say that Chaucer is very self-aware and kind of winky winky with his readers? I take this book as, um, it's funny in the way that Chaucer is funny, but I think that part of the charm of this book is it's so, uh, innocently serious I don't think it's trying to be self-aware. So self-aware, not in the sense that it's not purposeful, but in the sense that it's like, uh, there's like a, a sort of irony about its approach. Yeah, I don't think, I think I'm reading into self-aware, the word that you just said, David, irony. Yeah, no, like, I just wanted to clarify if we mean yeah, to say, make yeah. sure we're talking about the same things. I, I don't think that this book is being like even remotely ironic. That's, I think this book would fall apart if it tried to be remotely ironic. Like, hey, I'm in on the joke, you guys. Like the medievals were kind of, oh, uh, they just weren't very advanced. No, I don't think he thinks that at all. I think There's a sincerity like, and an earnestness absolutely. to its, its, its perspective. And it's so wonderful. Heidi, what do you think about this? I think that Eugene Vodoloshkin's very funny, but this is his least funny book by a mile because he's doing something very specific, which is what Tim said. Yeah. Like the first word, the, the opening two sentences of the novel are, he had four names at various times. A person's life is heterogeneous. So this could be seen as an advantage, right? Like that's a very funny sentence. Um, and, but it's one of the only ones in the novel. Some of his other novels are very funny. Brisbane is very funny. Like deadpan, really funny. Um, but not this one. Although when we get to the holy fool part, it's probably the most funny. So there's there's definitely some... Um, he's, he is... I, I mean, he's smarter than all of us put together. Rolled up and I, I, he is... He's such an amazing novelist. Um, and what he's doing with Loris and in all of his books is it's what he's, he's my second favorite living author. And there's, he, I just, Wait, who's first? Cormac McCarthy? Wendell Berry. Oh. Wendell Berry. <laughs> um, the ghost of Franz Kafka? He's, yeah. He is like, Vodoloshkin is one of the only contemporary novelist that I would say, like we could legitimately like sit at his feet. Mm. Um, so what he's doing here is not intended to be funny. Um, but it like, because of exactly what you just said, he's holding up an icon. This is an Orthodox novel. Like he's giving us an icon of Russia and, and saying, what are you like, what are you going to do with the, this moderns? So that brings me that brings me to the other question that I was holding back. Um, Heidi and I are Orthodox. Tim, you're not. I think you're sympathetic. Yeah. Um, but I, I, Heidi loves this book. I do not love it. I I respect it, but I don't particularly. Um, I don't know. It's uh, which is probably really good because you don't want to like come in with like from the same religious perspective and be like. This isn't a religious <laughs> book. It's a novel. It's not. It's not intended to convert. It's just. So, it's a novel. So I guess what I'm. I guess like we have different. Despite the fact that we both are orthodox, with a book that's full of orthodoxy by an orthodox writer, we have different perspectives. You love this book, but you're not orthodox, and so I'm curious 
is the orthodox stuff in it part of what's compelling to you or is that like something you have to like wade through? No, I think it's compelling to me. I, it's like, it's, it's kind of like, um, man, this may be a failed analogy, but I'm charging forward. Um, is Chaucer, <laughs> one does. is Chaucer Catholic? You're like, well, I mean, he's kind of critical of the Catholic church, but like, yeah, everything is Catholic when he, when he wrote. Mm-hmm. You can't write Canterbury a medieval. Tales. You can't write a medieval English novel without it being Catholic. Yeah, right, it's right, impossible, right, right. No matter yeah. how religious you are, same kind of thing here. Yeah, I feel the same thing here. Like, I can't separate. Like reading like, about the gods into Homer. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, do you think? Do you think Homer was a polytheist? Do you think he believed in the Greek gods? Well, yeah, everybody believed in the Greek gods. Yeah. You know, you're definitely reading it wrong if you're reading it for some kind of like apologetic purpose for yeah, the sake of yeah, a certain yeah, yeah. spiritual perspective. Yeah. So I kind of have a hard time teasing out the kind of like religious aspects of this book from the non-religious aspects of this book. It's all under the sacred canopy. What did you just say, Heidi? You don't think this book is trying to be an apologetic for a specific religious perspective? No, I mean, what I said was it's not intended to convert. Um, And then what I just said was that you're reading it wrong if we're reading it as from any kind of apologetic perspective and and meaning like we're just not getting it if we're like do i agree with arseni's spirituality right now which i think that's super important to say because there's some things coming in this novel that are going to be very off-putting to modern christians and and they're deep things in this novel that are like very, very different from how we as Western Christians have been trained to see the church. No matter what, whether you're Orthodox or, or, well, even if you're Orthodox, even that's what I'm saying. Modern Orthodox that we experience is there's a lot that's different in here. That's right. So I think what I'm saying is like, take that hat off of like, my theological apologetic perspective. If you want to understand or be, if you want to love this novel, if you want to approach it with any kind of humility, you have to take off my, you're like, I'm, I'm going to decide whether I theologically agree with this or that perspective. Just know right out of the gate, this is not going to be a a typical Christian. Like this is not your Amish romance novel. <laughs> this isn't an Amish romance novel. Unlike this all the not, other books, unlike the other books we do on this show, Amish romance novels are oh, they're very, they're popular, very yeah. popular. Yes, yeah, super popular. They're like yeah. a whole thing. Well, I disagree with their, I disagree with their theology, so Those I don't read that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you kidding. go. Yes, the yeah. the, uh, the prairie romance though you're super into, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, or vampire Tim, romance. Those are bad. We got. I know you got to go. I want to ask you for one tip moving forward uh, as we as we come as we move into the next section of the book. What is one thing you would recommend that readers do, listeners do as they're as they're digging into into the book? This is a cheap answer, but it's the thing that sprang to mind. Well, you get to go first, so perfect. Um, just give yourself over to the book. I mean, yeah. you know, like the thing that we talk about over and over on this podcast is that the author gets to set the rules of the author's book. And so I'm just going to say the same thing that Heidi said. Like I come from a Protestant background. I am, if I try to read this book and kind of like parse out whether or not, 
Eugene Vodolowski believes in like the tulip of reformed theology. <laughs> like I'm failing as a reader, you know, like, like he give yourself over. Yeah, he doesn't give yourself over to the book and you'll be more rewarded. And if you want to do like a, a theological, I don't know, you would call it postmortem when you're done reading the book, that's totally fine, but not in the middle of it. And if you're a read listener out there who's like, what's the th- what is a theological tulip? Then yeah, don't it, like, yeah you'll, no, you're... just stay in your happy place. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfectly said. Just stay in your happy place. Now everybody's like, "T U L I P." What are they talking about? Yeah, or they're mad at me. Uh, Tim, you can leave. We know you got to go. Uh, happy birthday to Galen. Have a good time at uh, at, at dinner with her. And um, uh, Heidi, I'm gonna ask you that same question though. Well, well, Tim heads off. So what, what would you say people should do? See ya. What should people do to prepare or as they're kind of reading the rest of this book? I think along just a, a companion piece to what Tim just said, which is um, don't expect to be on top of this book. Like you're going to be underneath it. And, and what I mean by that is that there's, it's, there's a complexity, a layered complexity to it mm-hmm. uh, that, that just, I've used the same analogy on the show before that I'm going to use now, which is like, this is like a cathedral. The first time you read this book, which may be the last time, although I'd encourage you to return to it. The first time you read it, just let yourself take a tour of the cathedral. Like don't try to catch every single thing that, that that's along the way. Don't sit, you know, don't, don't be like, I don't, what is that stained glass? Like you'll, you'll be in there forever and you won't love the book. Just let it be a tour. Um, your first read of it, because it's, bigger than it's bigger than me. Like it's bigger than all of us. Like it's, it's a very big novel and there's a lot going on. So don't like Tim said, let yourself kind of be taken under by it and just, just read it for the first time and let it be your first read Mm. and don't, don't make yourself get everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Cause you're not going to. No, I, even on the second third time. And, um, I mean, I'm going to read this novel many, many times in my life. Um, but this is only my third time reading it and I'm still a newbie. Like, I feel like this is, it's the same advice I I gave when we read the Odyssey, which is everyone has to read the Odyssey for the first time, but you haven't really read the Odyssey if you've only read it once. Right. And that like, this is, this why I say this is one of the only living authors that we can really sit at his feet. Like his, his books are, they're, they're masterpieces. They're, they're, they're bigger. Like he's one of, he's a genius. And, um, they're, they're bigger than us. And so I, I think that you um, could just let that be without having to get on top of it. All right. Well, next week we are going to do... Shoot, what are we going to do next week? Uh, 53 through... Heidi, what is it again? I, uh, um, great question. Let me find that. And while I'm finding it, um, I'm going to say something about this section. Here, um, go ahead. I, I, I'll, I'll find okay, it. Okay, go ahead. You... Okay. Um, this... This section has a comes with a trigger warning for me. What this is the first time I've ever done this on the show ever in my whole life, um, and it needs to be said that there is a scene coming in this week's reading that is very very intense. And so know that before you head in. Um, and that there's that. It's pages fifty three through one hundred nine is what we're going to read next. So that's going to take take you. Well, I guess it depends on the. It goes, it goes into the renunciation section, right, Heidi? Yes. Yes, yeah. it does. So it goes mm-hmm. into that yep. next section. And it's brilliant. Like, I don't, I don't want you to be afraid, re- listeners, but it's, it's just worth saying that 
it's there's I I would hate for you I, I would hate for you to get there and be like nobody told me so mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay um okay well with that we'll, uh, we'll conclude for today we'll be back next week uh, don't forget that you can check out the bonus episodes on East of Eden over at closeweeds.substack.com and of course we're going to have our uh, 2023 uh, epi- the episode where we choose the books for 2023 uh, that episode will be dropping soon uh, when we release all the books so be on the lookout for that uh, in the first few weeks of August okay well for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White I'm David Kern thanks so much for listening until next time happy reading mm-hmm.